there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 125, Killing Time. By the start of 1932, it was pretty clear to everyone that the recession that kicked off back in 1929 wasn't going away, and in fact was getting worse. With its spread to the rest of the world, it in fact looked like it was going to get a whole heck of a lot worse. And while I'm not going to blame the whole thing on poor, overwhelmed Herbert Hoover, he's a handy representative example for the greater failures that occurred. In modern day, they call the whole thing some kind of systemic failure, as if the institutions simply weren't geared to handle the terrible strain. Except that wasn't quite true. The progressive era preceding the 1920s had demonstrated that under energetic leadership, the federal government could utilize a great deal of authority to tackle any given problem. What we are covering in the first few years of the Depression is a failure of mentality and beliefs. The orthodoxy of much of America had been rooted in simple notions of avoiding debt and limiting the power of federal government. The bedrock of this was small-town American values and norms that, while never 100% obeyed, were at the very least the stories people told themselves. These stories were then pushed and sold by a business class and other elites that materially benefited from the lack of oversight. Calvin Coolidge had been the epitome of this, a man who blindly hated the federal government he found himself at the apex of, and who slashed at its capabilities so deeply that it seemed nonsensical even to those who generally shared his beliefs. Hoover was merely the last man in a line of leaders that favored letting markets run their course and keeping the federal government small. He recognized the good that the central government could do, but was mindful not to empower it too much. And as it turned out, that hands-off mentality brought the nation to ruin. It first allowed for a colossal bubble to form in the American economy, and even when economists woke up to the dangers in early 1929, nothing meaningful was ultimately done to stop the disaster. Then, when the storm actually broke, there were cycles of fear among Hoover and other leaders sufficient to spurn them into some action. But then, when each cycle passed, as happened after late 1929 and late 1930, those in positions of influence convinced themselves that the worst was over and that the market would sort itself out. They believed that the bad actors who had created the initial speculative bubble that caused the whole mess were outliers and not the natural byproducts of the system they had encouraged. The Depression was bad, certainly, but it would clear out all the driftwood that had accumulated in the economy. By mid-1931, those notions were out the window, and both the public and even the elites had grown tired of such hopeful notions. The nation had to be mobilized to counteract the seemingly endless economic collapse. Hoover, though, was not the man to do this. He was a self-made man, after all, coming from a modest background in a family of Quakers, although he himself was not terribly religious. He had started as a laborer in California mines, and through his own initiative, combined with the more random good fortune of meeting the right people at the right time, rose through the ranks of an English mining company. His employment with the firm took him as far afield as China and Australia, eventually putting him in Europe as an independently wealthy man, just as humanitarian crises started appearing all over Europe. From there, he became a global hero, and ultimately one of its leaders. He believed in American individualism because he was the rare case where it actually happened to him. He had the luck that so many others weren't blessed with, the talent to then exploit that luck, and so he reached the top. 
it shouldn't be too surprising that he didn't want to create the precedent of dependency among the American citizenry. After all, he never had needed it himself. And America was rather unique in just how violently it resisted public programs to relieve poverty and economic dislocation. The elites rather disingenuously railed against anything perceived as handouts, whether it was welfare payments or food relief, as a direct attack on the moral fiber of American society. Give a poor man even a little, and he'd grow addicted to the comforts of aid that he didn't work for. Help coming from the government would become an expectation. This would be a problem for the capitalist class, as it meant the proletariat would have alternatives to terrible work at terrible wages. No social safety net meant that jobs were a cherished thing, the only thread connecting families with what they needed to survive. Give them an alternative, even a bad one, then they'd be slower to accept the terrible jobs that nevertheless had to be filled. It would also create that precedent of government intervention. If the state could intervene on behalf of the unemployed under the guise of the public good, where else could they intervene? Lastly, a lot of these guys actually believed in the rugged American individualism myth as Hoover did. If you've been wondering over the past couple episodes just why anybody didn't step in and say enough's enough, it's because they all stick to their principles that were the closest thing to an ideology that they had. And by 1932, it had all failed. America, as conceived of by Hoover and those like him, had failed. That winter, the funds allocated to guarantee set prices and purchases for agricultural products through the Federal Farm Board had become exhausted. Without government intervention, there were too few buyers for crops as nobody had any money to buy so much food. And as demand plummeted, so did prices. And farmers continued their death spiral after the brief reprieve of government support. Crops rotted, animals starved for want of feed. All the way up to 1931, farmers had done what they always felt they had to do and simply planted more in order to survive. I mentioned a couple of times that advice coming from economists was for farmers to simply plant less collectively in order to drive up prices, but America's farmers were wholly incapable of that level of collective action. They were simply too dispersed and too unorganized. A notable exception was the case of Western and Central Iowa, where farmers in August 1932 got together and set up blockades along the roads to interdict anyone shipping out crops. The idea was to shut down food deliveries until they could secure fair prices. And they did a good job of it, setting up barricades and checkpoints along the roadways to make sure people weren't breaking the strike. That is, it did well for the first few months. The strike leaders among the farmers grew apprehensive about what they were unleashing, a common theme in the history of American labor, and when there was a shooting incident in an encampment of farmers, that was used as a pretext to call the food strike off. Enthusiasm had been dropping anyway. Uh, late summer of 1932 was years after things had started getting bad anyway, and the farmers by then had started putting faith in FDR to start fixing things, as it looked like he had the presidential election in the bag. Individual examples here and there aside, uh, the broad picture spoke a different story. All the way up to 1931, acreage under cultivation actually increased. Even after prices bottomed out and agricultural production finally declined, it only went down by 15% total from its all-time highs. Prices, though, declined by 40%. And remember, they had been doing bad at the start of the Depression already. This was all, and I've been using this phrase quite a bit, 
really, really bad for the nation's farmers because industrial goods didn't go through the same experience. Factories were able to cut their production back by 42%, which meant that manufactured goods became scarcer. So even in depression conditions, costs of those goods dropped by only 15%. What I'm getting at is farmers were once again working with less money, but needing to buy the same amount of manufactured goods in order to operate their farms. It was a vicious circle that proved to be the ruin of thousands of American farmers. If their savings hadn't already been wiped out in bank runs, they were whittled down just buying the bare necessities. Rumblings began making their way back to Washington about discontent in the countryside. Warnings detailed that the traditionally conservative American farmer was becoming radicalized. If nothing was done, then they, they could go red. It's useful to keep in mind that these were exaggerations, but they were exaggerations that got thrown about a lot during the days of crisis. Farmers weren't going communist. They weren't demanding that their properties become collectivized. But in America, any elite, whether they operated on a national level or a local one, was hypersensitive to the demands of workers. If the farmers started demanding modest measures like monetary relief to keep their private enterprises going during the lean years, well, that was basically communism to their ears. In the cities, the hellscape conditions matched what was being felt out in the country. Precise unemployment figures are unavailable because the government at the time didn't keep track of such things, but by 1932, it was likely over 20% and would grow to 25% by 1933. Still, Hoover insisted that his approach of letting local governments handle public aid was the correct one. And to be fair to those local governments, they were trying. Already in 1929, local aid accounted for 75% of spending for the unemployed, and by 1932, that had increased to 80%. Under pressure to do more, Hoover created the President's Organization on Unemployment Relief, which was to streamline relief for the entire nation. Funny thing, though, he put a man named Walter Gifford in charge of the agency. Gifford was president of AT&T and was in complete agreement with Hoover on where relief should originate, preferring local government and favoring private charity even more. Additional bit of info on Hoover, he had a tendency to surround himself with people that agreed with him. In January 1932, five months after being appointed, Gifford went before a Senate committee to give a report on how things were going. He stated that he had no knowledge of how many Americans were unemployed, how much was being spent on aid across the country, how it was being spent, and what effect it might be having on public health. Even for members of the U.S. Senate, Gifford's answers were shockingly uninterested. Gifford would sum up his statements by expressing he had every confidence that local relief efforts were more than sufficient. When asked for any kind of report or a piece of data to back up that confidence, Gifford replied that he didn't have any. He then stated, I hope you are not criticizing me for looking at life optimistically. Yeah, that was the level of help coming out of the Hoover administration. Unfortunately for actual citizens, by 1932, local resources had largely dried up. Years of economic crisis had tapped whatever savings that cities, counties, and states might have built up, and their own tax bases were disintegrating, with their communities all losing their jobs. It was a fight just to keep basic services going, and public relief disappeared. New York City, for instance, was only able to offer $2.39 in weekly aid for an entire household. Which, I know, a dollar went further back then, but it didn't go that far. 
The bread and soup lines for the unemployed became an established pattern of urban life, and waiting rooms full of tired and frazzled applicants, desperate for any kind of employment, were a common sight. For the unemployed, the loss of work was a source of both physical and mental devastation. For the entire family, there would be shortages of food, with New York City reporting 20,000 malnourished youth in its school system by the winter of 1932. Clothes would be first become threadbare, then patched with what was available, and then would disintegrate completely. In rural areas, simple clothing like children's dresses were fashioned from burlap sacks that had contained animal feed at one point. And the want of hunger for many families would linger for years, day in, day out. The feeling of hunger was a constant companion, and in the winter the cold hit hard for want of heating fuel. It was understandably devastating for families, and for younger couples, the time for having children was put off, which was wise because in households that lacked food, it was also far more likely that infants would die prematurely. For established families, the nature of the American household created pressures that broke many. The father was supposed to be the breadwinner of any respectable family, while the wife dutifully held down the home front. When I spoke earlier about the myths of American individualism, it's important to note that the average American bought into that idea just as much as the owning class, which actually benefited the most from it. The dream was to work hard, earn your way, and create opportunities for your kids to do better later. The Depression shattered those preconceived notions and challenged how people saw themselves. There weren't opportunities to work hard, so men couldn't earn their way honestly. Shame is a word that crops up again and again in the recollections of those who lived through those years, especially among those who were children. Parents would work themselves to the bone just trying to find work, and upon failing, could barely look their own families in the eye. They would watch their children go hungry, confused why within their memory they had once had plenty to eat and clothes to wear and a comfortable home, only to suddenly watch it all go away. Feelings of depression and I mean that in the mental health sense here, clouded homes. By the start of 1932, the despair was joined by widespread bitterness. It was heartbreaking, and there wasn't a clear way out of it. The jobs weren't there. Money wasn't there. What credit was available to the average American household was quickly exhausted. From there, families would hit up their relations or close friends and sheepishly ask for help. Once that was exhausted... They'd turn to the government, which, until the New Deal got going, was mostly local. For some, it was enough, and families scraped by. Painfully, uncertainly, many clung to an existence. For countless many, again, the numbers weren't tracked, it was just the start of their descent. Because once all financial recourse had proven to be insufficient to keep a roof over your head, homelessness followed. And this led to a trademark of the Depression, the Hooverville. They were found all across the country and came in all types and sizes. Sometimes it could just be a few structures in a derelict alley. Sometimes it could be its own ramshackle town outside the city proper. These were communities of the homeless that, having been denied standard housing due to a lack of means, turned towards constructing ad hoc shacks. And the homeless banded together, not just because misery loves company, but because you'd get into a lot less trouble as a unit than if you cobbled together a shack off by yourself. And the sad truth was that Hoovervilles were the nicer way to spend a bout of homelessness. A lot of destitute couldn't even get a shack together and instead slept rough on the street or in vacated buildings. 
The term Hooverville was coined by the Democrats and caused President Hoover himself no small amount of offense. He was inclined to shift the blame of the Depression and bitterly remarked that it'd be more appropriate to call them Federal Reserve Vills. Too bad that doesn't roll off the tongue as well. While Hoovervilles existed across the nation, there was one signature encampment that I wanted to cover. It was one that was destroyed even more quickly than it had been built because it was the one assembled by the Bonus Army. Okay, so, two episodes ago I mentioned that Hoover had vetoed legislation that would have made the bonus due to World War I veterans in 1945 available immediately. The veterans of the country were not thrilled about the news, as many really needed that money. Then, in May 1932, a group of veterans in Portland, Oregon, decided to actually do something about their destitute circumstances. They decided to go to Washington. They chose as their leader a former sergeant, Walter W. Waters, Together, they rode the rails and headed east. Their watchwords were, no panhandling, no drinking, no radicalism. So, they weren't exactly revolutionaries. By May 21st, they had reached East St. Louis, and the railroad companies tried to bar them from going further. They responded by sabotaging the rail yards. The National Guard was called in, but instead of cracking down on them, they were simply loaded onto trucks and shipped further east. News of the incident went national, and veterans across the country started making their way to D.C. They adopted the moniker Bonus Expeditionary Force, or the BEF. The movement was spontaneous, and there had been no prior planning for it. For the veterans, the collective action and working with men of similar backgrounds again was a remedy for the crippling loneliness that they had been experiencing while living in poverty. It was also lucky for them that the head of the D.C. police force was himself a former brigadier general and sympathized with them. He kept the cops from harassing the growing community of homeless vets, as well as arranged for field kitchens to be set up and provided them some tents. The veterans set up on the mudflats of Anacostia, south of D.C. Center. There was still some support in Congress in favor of giving them the money, and on June 15th, as thousands of vets were filing into town, the House of Representatives passed a new bill to try once again and get them the money. On June 17th, with the BEF now assembled outside the Capitol building, Waiting, the Senate deliberated the bill. The Senate decided to try the danger of nearly 20,000 desperate men standing outside and voted down the legislation. Fortunately for the American government, their citizenry was properly broken in, and they didn't know what to do upon being told the game was over in Congress. Some 15,000, though, decided to stick around and conduct a permanent protest, hoping that Congress would change its mind. This is where Anacostia really becomes notable as a Hooverville. It had 15,000 people living in it, the size of a decent small town, and it was getting to be late June in Washington, D.C., which is a notably hot, swampy, and humid place. And the mud flats they settled on were vacant because nobody wanted to live there. The heat was unbearable, mosquitoes were rampant, and the refuse started piling up in short order. I'm saying this is a really unpleasant place to be. The BEF pretty quickly fell into a general existence of discomfort that was not helped by Walter Waters trying to instill a sergeant's sense of discipline on the whole group, which was mostly ignored. The leaders of the BEF mostly contented themselves with throwing out communist agitators who were trying to stir the group into taking more direct action. Hoover, for his part, decided to just ignore them. And so they stewed well into July with no acknowledgement from the federal government. The Bonus Army assembled in front of the Capitol building one more time for Congress's uh, final session for the summer, which was usually attended by the president. 
Hoover, though, decided to stay at home, and the BEF went back to the camp. The government did desperately want them to go away, but the veterans refused to be provoked. That is, until July 28th. On that day, some D.C. cops went to clear a smaller encampment that had been erected along Pennsylvania Avenue. The veterans, egged on by communists, fought back and charged the cops. They were dispersed, but the scuffle signaled a shift in atmosphere. In another part of town, cops were clearing veterans from a vacant building. One cop slipped and fell, and in a panic, another fired his gun into a group of veterans, killing one immediately. The other cops then let loose, killing another and wounding several. Cover had now been obtained to request that the army be brought in. And the arrival of army units is where this story gets even more juicy, because the troops were led by the army chief of staff, General Douglas MacArthur. Yes, that MacArthur. His aide was Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, and among the cavalry troops deployed was George Patton, a real who's who of future American military notables were summoned to disperse the veterans. And MacArthur's orders were very much so to get them well and truly dispersed. The force consisted of mounted cavalry, tanks, and tear gas-equipped infantry. They spent the afternoon of July 28th sweeping the city. Then, as the sun set, they turned on the Anacostia encampment. They gave the BEF an hour to leave, then moved in. Preceded by tear gas, the infantry swept through the shacks and tents, attacking any who still remained. Many veterans set their own shacks on fire as they made a break for it, creating a chaotic scene of tear gas and flame on a D.C. summer night. MacArthur was jubilant as he felt he had nipped a burgeoning revolution in the bud. The Hoover administration was quick to paint the Bonus Army as a pack of communists, which even at the time didn't hold water. But again, showed where the concern and paranoia of the American elites rested. The BEF dispersed in short order, without offering any real resistance. Far from a revolutionary force, they, much like the rest of the country, were willing to continue enduring their lot in life without rising against the state. That being said, the incident did not go over well among Americans in general. Hoover's inaction was bad enough. That he had ordered the attack on men who had served the nation in wartime was dumbfounding. Which, maybe that's not fair. He hadn't ordered the troops to storm the camp with tear gas and bayonets at the ready. But when MacArthur committed to doing things the hard way, his administration stood by the decision. It was really bad PR, and while he was deep enough in the hole that the 1932 election was never going to break his way, this was just icing on the cake. The Democrats, for their part, were looking to not screw up a sure thing when it came to that election. Yes, everything looked like it'd break their way, but they wanted the election to be apocalyptic for the Republicans. They had been tormented for over a decade, and now was their time. We know that Franklin Delano Roosevelt would get the nomination for the presidency, but his pathway there wasn't clear in 1932. For one, the Democratic National Committee, the organizational leadership of the Democratic Party, was controlled by one John J. Raskob. He was a former executive of DuPont and General Motors, was a millionaire, a former Republican, and in exchange for bankrolling the party, expected that his conservative views on business would be acted upon. And his money did keep the party alive during the mid-20s after the disastrous 1924 election. But he was adamantly opposed to FDR. Al Smith, the former governor of New York and a former mentor of FDR, as well as a past Democratic candidate for the presidency, was now FDR's most active detractor. Smith was a creature of the NYC political machine, the infamous Tammany Hall clique, and expected a certain amount of deference. FDR, who, as the sitting governor of New York, had built a long list of contacts across the country, 
as well as a sterling national profile, had ambitions all his own. Ideologically, the battle of the party's nomination was going to be over the resurgent progressives under Roosevelt and the party's traditionalists of regional interest. Smith himself had become notably pro-business after leaving elected office. He lived in an NYC town manor and was president of the Empire State Building, in addition to enjoying executive postings in a number of banks and insurance companies. When it came to business, he sounded a lot like Hoover. The Democrats assembled in late June 1932 for their convention in Chicago. The Republicans had held theirs in the same city earlier that month in what had been a drab affair. They had avoided talking about the Depression and kept the focus on side topics like Prohibition. The anti-FDR clique damaged themselves earlier by indicating that they, too, would make Prohibition a topic of similar import, which the FDR crowd immediately pounced on as hopelessly out of touch. As famous as Prohibition is with modern listeners, it really wasn't the most pressing piece of business in that era. FDR would opt to remain in Albany for the convention itself, while Al Smith showed up personally to do his backroom deals. Desperate to stop the popular FDR, Smith moved to make an alliance with William McAdoo, Woodrow Wilson's former Secretary of the Treasury. McAdoo, you'll remember from last season, was also a frontrunner for the Democratic nomination back in 1924, that cluster of a convention that saw dozens of fruitless votes deadlocked between himself and Smith. Smith, who had done so much to scuttle McAdoo's presidential ambitions, came to him hat in hand. Smith came away from their meetings with at least an understanding that they would coordinate how the delegates they controlled actually voted, which could at very least stop FDR. Raskob, for his part, as DNC head, had developed the strategy of encouraging as many local candidates as humanly possible. Most weren't viable on national stage, but their purpose was to muddle the waters among the Democratic delegates and shift attention away from FDR. If Roosevelt's people took too strong a line in trying to crush the smaller candidates, they might alienate some delegates. When the actual voting began, FDR was overwhelmingly the favorite. But party rules at the time held that a nominee had to get that magical two-thirds of support to get the nomination, which was the ultimate goal of the anti-FDR faction. They'd drag out the election process so long that the party would have to give up and seek a compromise candidate. Horse trading began in earnest, with the first vote starting at 4.30 a.m. on Thursday, June 30th, and the session only ending on the next day at 9.15 a.m. The parties adjourned to get brief naps and try and politic away from the floor. FDR's support in the South appeared to be shifting away towards alternative candidates when a breath of good news reached his people at 3 p.m. that Friday. John Garner, a Texan who was placing third behind FDR and Smith, decided to throw in with FDR. It didn't put Roosevelt over the edge, but did show which way the winds were blowing. The convention was still young, though, and Smith and Raskob stuck to their strategy of delay to break up FDR's support. When the next round of voting took place, Garner's supporters reliably voted as he wished and went over to FDR. Then McAdoo took the podium on behalf of California and declared suddenly the state would go to FDR after all, putting him well over two-thirds of the vote. McAdoo had shivved L. Smith and broke their agreement, getting revenge for the nightmare of 1924 that had sunk his own political prospects. Al Smith, a fixture of Democratic politics for decades, was finished. Smith exited the convention bitterly, refusing to throw his support behind his party's selected candidate. His supporters tore FDR posters from the walls of the hotel the convention was being held in. Roosevelt announced he would fly from Albany and be in Chicago the next day to accept the nomination. 
Normally, the acceptance process in those days was a little mundane, with a small ceremony a few weeks after the convention. Roosevelt, though, wanted to rally the party faithful immediately and hit the ground running, which, uh, uh, don't think too hard about that cliché, I know. Upon arriving, he commented on the change in protocol, stating that he intended to dispense with absurd traditions that stood in the way of progress. He warned the conservatives of the party that the platform going forward would be a progressive one, and that government power would be utilized in unprecedented fashion and promised the American people a new deal. The campaign itself was far less dramatic. The Republicans were in disarray, and even large sections of the business class had decided to back Roosevelt. Hoover was the only one of his party to hit the trail with any energy, and certainly the only one who believed he could actually win. He ran himself ragged in summer and autumn 1932, insisting that the support of his conception of America was still there. FDR's New Deal proposals at the time of the campaign were still nebulous, but to Hoover, they smacked of everything he feared and hated in government. It didn't matter, of course. FDR won by a landslide. Uh, The Democrats picked up a solid majority in the Senate and three-quarters of the House. It was a shellacking and would give FDR the vital congressional support needed to get the New Deal off the ground. It would be a whole new world for American politics and marked a break from the stale and visionless 1920s. And that's where I'll leave America for now, as next week we'll be moving on to the effects of the Depression elsewhere in the world. I know I touched on the topic a bit last episode, but this time I'll be delving deeper into how the dislocations affected the direction of society and the internal politics of some of the notable players of the global crisis, which will segue very well into the next miniseries as well, which is, of course, the fall of Weimar. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 